Hello and welcome to the AMP podcast, the show where we discuss the latest trends, research and insights in the entertainment industry. My name's Nick Thomas. I'm the editorial director here at Ampere Analysis and I'll be your host for today. On today's show, we'll be looking at theatrical and its role in monetizing content. I'll be discussing the prospects for the global theatrical market with Peter Ingram, looking at how the Hollywood strikes have impacted commissioning and the pipeline of content with Alice Thorpe, and talking to Rahul Patel about the emerging trends in content licensing as studios and SVOD services explore the best way to maximize revenue from each window in a title's life cycle. Peter, Alice and Rahul, welcome to the show. So, Peter, during the pandemic, we saw cinemas close down all over the world and theatrical takings reached record lows. 2022 was the first year that saw cinemas fully reopen in many countries across the world. So how have they fared since then? Well, the global theatrical market was down in 2022 at around $23 billion in revenues at year end, which is almost 40% below the market's pre-pandemic value in 2019, but more positively an increase over 2021. If you look at Western markets, growth in admissions was primarily driven by major franchise titles, so the likes of Top Gun Maverick, Jurassic World, and Minions The Rise of Gru were among the highest grossing films of the year, plus the leading film of the year, of course, Avatar 2 The Way of Water. The film generated around $2.3 billion in international takings, and is among the highest grossing films of all time, after Avengers Endgame and its predecessor, Avatar 1. Ultimately, I think this is sort of an indication that major franchises have been key since 2020 to entice audiences back into cinemas, as their established characters and long-running storylines can help entice audiences to return en masse. If you look elsewhere, however, we see a more muted picture in 2022. The APAC region, which is dominated by China, saw a dip in revenues in 2022 compared to the previous year. This was caused by ongoing lockdowns that continued throughout the year. Screens were shuttered without confirmation of reopening, compounded by concerns around gathering in communal spaces such as cinemas, and this ultimately proved damaging during the key holiday periods that have historically been vital for the industry, leaving revenues down by around a third of what they were in 2021. So box office revenues are still down even though cinemas are open. So is this a change in viewing habits? People just watching films at home? Or is there a broader issue for cinemas? Well, I think there are always going to be audiences keen to see popular new releases through the theatrical window, as cinemas still carry a great deal of cultural importance and offer a fun day out for consumers. But shifts in audience habits and developments across the industry itself have driven a broader change. Even after formal lockdowns ceased across much of the world in 2021, the impact of the pandemic was still felt as infection prevention measures remained in place, leaving cinemas closed or reopened at a greatly limited capacity. Globally, the variations in cinema opening threw the viability of the traditional opening weekend into question, and this led to studios adopting some hybrid release strategies for many of their films, making new releases available for home viewing much sooner than had been possible pre-pandemic through streaming services, and this gave greater legitimacy to streaming video on demand as a way for audiences to consume new film content. Then, if we move on into last year, the theatrical sector was still feeling the hangover from COVID, as production delays and cancellations across the previous two years ultimately led to cinemas having a reduced volume of films to show. Plus, consumer behaviour had shifted more towards streamers. 
Many of the factors, which proved so detrimental to cinemas, actually worked for the benefit of streaming services since 2020. Namely, that people are instructed to stay at home and find entertainment through mediums where they could remain socially distanced, with these behavioural changes hard to shift, even now as cinemas are open. So you mentioned that in 2022, the global box office was pretty reliant on existing franchises for, for its success. How's 2023 looking so far? It looks like a different kind of films have been, uh, have been making their mark. So I would say that franchises do still have a place in audiences' hearts, with Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and Mission Impossible 7 among the highest grossing films of the year so far. But you are absolutely right that it is alternative types of film to really leading, especially compared to previous years where franchises were so dominant. The global phenomenon Barbie is the highest grossing film of the year thus far, with overall takings at around $1.4 billion. The film is interesting because it is not strictly a continuation of a film franchise, but rather a standalone movie based on existing popular intellectual property. could see something similar also happening with the second highest grossing film of the year, the Super Mario Brothers movie, itself grossing a similar round $1.4 billion internationally. This was again a film based on an iconic, recognisable character with global appeal, and so this may be an indicator for what studios could look into doing going forwards as the industry continues to recover. I think it's also perhaps worth noting here that these two films tap into the main interests of the audiences who have been returning to cinemas the most and have been the most important for theatrical takings. Younger audiences and families with children have been returning to cinemas in the highest number since 2020, per date from Ampere's consumer survey. And so it seems that films like these, with general appeal that can interest both new young cinema goers and parents with nostalgia for the recognised IP from their own youth, can provide an alternative to relying strictly on ongoing franchise tentpoles to support studio activity. That being said, though, other genres of course remain important. Barbie helped gain audience attention through the meme culture surrounding its counter-release with Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, itself the third highest grossing film of the year so far, at just under a billion dollars in takings, showing that prestige film releases can still play an important role in bringing audiences back to cinemas. And most recently, we're seeing uh, the success of Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Interestingly, it's backed by Apple. What does the success of theatrical mean for a title that, that then is owned by or appears on an SVOD service? Well, theatrical success is, of course, important for films in several ways. The window continues to be the most profitable and highest revenue-generating segment of a film's life cycle, and so studios will certainly be keen to support it, especially as many of these recent titles that I've discussed have proved that audiences are definitely still keen to watch films in theatres. In relation to SVOD, though, streaming has become an important aspect of film release strategies for studios, especially now as most either operate their own SVOD service or structure output deals with global players. This helps them monetize their content following the conclusion of the theatrical window, which has been shortening in recent years to allow for newer films to become available on VOD sooner. The shortening of the theatrical exclusive window allows for films to capitalize on their peak popularity when in cinemas, while also providing momentum at their launch on VOD, as the films are still fresh in the public's consciousness, supporting their discoverability. This is important for video-on-demand platform subscriber strategies, whether that's across acquisition, a service differentiation, and retention, which are key as the market is becoming increasingly saturated. 
And so new film releases become a really good way of keeping catalogues fresh. We've discussed in previous podcasts when there were experiments with day and date releases and so on, that there was a, a significant tension between the theatrical sector and some of the SVOD players around you know, where the value of a content would be realised. But I think what everyone's realising is that in a, in a challenging market, there's a win-win opportunity here, which is a successful theatrical window, delivers a successful streaming product as well. So it seems to be a, a healthier relationship between those parts of the industry. Exactly. Uh, one thing that I would certainly stress is that though the theatrical market remains down on its pre-pandemic strength, this isn't to say that the revenues are being lost forever, rather that they are being collected elsewhere in the entertainment ecosystem. If we look at streaming, in terms of overall revenues from subscriptions, the industry is poised to reach over $116 billion at the end of 2023. Theatrical films play an increasingly important role in sustaining the growth of the streaming sector, and as a result, the two income streams should be regarded as complementary and similarly important for content producers, as both are key to the effective monetization of films. I think, overall, coexistences between video on demand and theatrical, each utilising the strengths of the other to their own benefit, can prove to be beneficial for the industry as a whole. Alice, Peter mentioned that 2023 is, is an interesting year in terms of the, the franchises or the non-franchises that are proving successful at the box office. And some of the traditionally strong franchises that propped up cinema in 2022 haven't really made their mark this year. So in, from a commissioning perspective, are you seeing a franchise refresh? Are the studios having to rethink what their franchise strategy is? We're seeing a little bit of that. I think it was interesting that Peter highlighted Barbie and Oppenheimer, of course, as the, the two undeniable successes of the year and the unlikely nature of that pairing. I think one way to, to really describe this year at the box office has been unlikely all round. There's been films which have broken out in ways that we perhaps might not have expected a few months or a year a year ago. And interestingly, I think part of that is really triggering perhaps not quite a refresh just yet, but a, a reevaluation of what works and what doesn't. Now, that's interesting in terms of who this might impact in, in terms of the studios. Some are obviously more beholden to certain franchises than others. You've got the likes of Disney and Warner, who both are invested in long-running interconnected movie franchises in the case of the Marvel and DC universes. Interestingly, we've seen quite a few of those films sort of underperforming this year compared to uh, the expectations around other big blockbusters. Some of those studios have also kind of already started this re rebooting process, I think most notably with the DC universe. We've seen a bit of a, a refresh there already, and I think that's probably something which that studio is going to lean on a bit more. But it, we're not moving away from franchises entirely. I think it's just a, a case of creating new ones, really, as Peter highlighted something like Barbie. It's very well-known IP, and I'm sure we'll also have many Barbie sequels to come after the, the massive success of 2023's first film. So it is really a case of refreshing with new IP and looking for new ways to kind of spark that nostalgia with audiences. And Rahul, another trend we're seeing right now in the cinemas that was a little bit unexpected, as, as Alice said, is the success Taylor Swift is having with her concert tour we tend to think theatrical is all around scripted, fictional, narrative content. But event cinema, whether that's concerts or theatrical performances, those things are becoming quite important for cinemas, aren't they? Yes, definitely. I think the success of Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour concert movie that came out this month, 
shows that certain, you know, distinct projects from the typical theatrical slate can do very well in cinemas and in a world of a slimmed down theatrical release calendar, event cinema may hold an even bigger place in the calendar. When we think about the Taylor Swift case here, it's unclear as of yet how easily that will be to replicate. Of course, Taylor Swift is one of the biggest pop stars in the world and naturally was able to bypass the studios to distribute the movie given her social media following and general level of fame. But it's quite exciting to see that cinemas and content producers in the case, Taylor Swift here, of course, Beyonce has a Renaissance world tour movie coming out later this year as well. Seeing them experiment with the format and provide audiences another different reason to go to the cinema. So Alice, you've been following the strikes in Hollywood and we know that the WGA concluded theirs last month. So what did they end up agreeing? So the agreement that was reached between the the AMPTP, the major studios and streamers, and the Writers Guild really focused around three main areas. The first is perhaps the less headline grabbing, but it's the minimum guarantees for writers, which writers have been pushing for for quite some time now. So it's things like having a minimum number of writers in your writer's room, defining minimum weeks worth of work, which will be offered to writers on projects, allowing them to be involved in the production and even post-production processes, as well as just their, their own main focus with the writing. But then you've got two other key areas which are also very relevant in terms of the negotiations with the actors. And those are firstly AI. So there were certain guarantees around AI that were reached effectively, meaning that AI cannot be treated as a writer, i.e. it cannot be credited as a writer, and were either the studios or writers themselves to use AI as part of their development process, they would have to have the consent of the other and most importantly, credit could not be given to AI over a human. So writer's credits are effectively protected that way. And then the other and final area, which is also a key sticking point in the current negotiations with SAG-AFTRA, is residuals. And the agreement reached there between AMPTP and the Writers Guild centres around what is being called a success-based bonus, which effectively means if you're a show or your film reaches a certain success threshold on the platform, writers will be recompensed accordingly. So the, the current arrangement is that from January next year, writers will receive a residual bonus for streaming, made for streaming titles viewed by 20% or more of these services' domestic subscribers. And they, there was also one final agreement around data sharing. So viewing data being required to be shared with writers and producers, albeit in most likely aggregated form. So thanks, Alice. That's, that's really helpful in understanding what the writers have agreed. So where, where is SAG-AFTRA at right now and what are the issues still for them? Well, the key sticking points in terms of SAG-AFTRA's negotiations is around residuals. So as I was saying, the writers have settled on this success-based bonus, but SAG-AFTRA is pushing for something much more than that. Basically, the the requirement that um, SAG-AFTRA put forward in the, the latest round of negotiations was effectively a flat fee applied to streamers. So they proposed a $0.57 cent per domestic subscriber annual fee 
levied against the streaming platforms, which would go to the union and then effectively be shared out uh, amongst union members. Now, the MPTP has been very reticent to agree to anything approaching a flat fee. SAG-AFTRA's argument behind this has been effectively to highlight the, the relative precarity of the acting profession compared to the writing profession. Both are obviously, you know, precarious in their own ways, but in terms of the broad swathe of acting talent and the fact that the biggest paid star can be earning, you know, exponentially more than a regular on a on a on a broadcast TV show or someone who's doing walk-on parts in a lot of different titles. Um, so the argument really there is that this is effectively a kind of income protection almost for the acting profession when it comes to their involvement with streaming platforms. But this is really what the main sticking point has been for the actors because they're effectively saying that the the writer's deal doesn't go quite far enough for them. I think the AMPTP effectively were keen to use the uh, contract agreement that was made with the writer's union as a template for negotiations with the actors. But we've still got that level of contention around the exact extent to which actors should be recompensed for their work going forward. One of the things you touched on there was around how the traditional business model of Hollywood is very much predicated on the the huge salary or the, the, the share taken by the lead actors, the star, the talent that apparently is the reason we go and see a film. That's always struck me as that's something that doesn't really make a difference anymore in terms of when we go to see a film, as we've talked about, franchises are important. So it feels like it's a necessary correction to a business model that is sort of out of date. But I wonder what will happen to budgets in terms of that. If the writers are better recompensed, if the actors are better recompensed, or that the kind of non-lead actors are better recompensed, is there going to be a, a, an adjustment somewhere else? That will be the studio's argument, in effect, once they've agreed on residual agreements for streaming. It will be something they can point to and say, look, we've made these concessions around streaming. We can't necessarily then also continue to make particular concessions to the highest paid talent. But actually, it's interesting that you bring up the question of sort of star power and its relationship to budgets and so on. Because uh, one question that this move towards streaming residuals inevitably raises is, is this going to motivate Esfold invested uh, studios to actually renew their commitment to theatrical. If you think about the, the theatrical model as it exists now and as it existed for a long time, there is in effect a kind of prepaid residual arrangement, which is quite common in that it is success-based, like the, the writer's contract, that major talent, high-profile stars can negotiate a cut of box office. But there is a, there's perhaps an argument to be had for negotiating your, your budget distribution on the basis that actors, should the film do well, will get a cut of box office, as opposed to what often happens currently. If, if we look at streaming originals, films made for streaming, because that potential for a box office return for the key talent isn't there, often talent are recompensed up front for the lack of a box office window. So, in fact, a lot of the streamers have been, in a sense, uh, relatively speaking, paying over the odds for their movies already because they're having to recompense uh, actors and, and key talent for the lack of that previous window. So I think in many ways, this links up to what you, you were saying earlier about, for example, Killers of the Flower Moon and Apple getting into the theatrical space. 
the likes of Apple and Amazon, who have both now committed to, I think, around a billion a year for theatrical releases going forward, have the option now to to choose where they negotiate in terms of how they're paying their paying their talent and where they're putting their budget and how best to work that through the different windows. Stepping back from the minutiae of the of the negotiations and the deal, obviously we're still waiting to see what the impact is of of the strikes and the stopping of production that we've seen in in the US. In terms of the impact for 2024, what are you seeing? How how do you think that will impact the calendar of content rolling out? I mean, content as a whole is going to be pretty severely impacted at this point in terms of television and high-end scripted series. We're looking at around 75% of those shows which were originally scheduled to premiere this January, having been delayed by the strike action. And that delay continues well into 2024. So we're looking at at least half of that high-end scripted content having been delayed right up till sort of autumn of 2024. So there's significant impact there. In terms of film, we're also seeing, of course, a lot of distributors shifting dates around, moving their titles to next year that were perhaps supposed to premiere at the end of this year. A key example of that would be the likes of Dune Part 2 at Warner Brothers. It's a film that's complete and ready to go, but because it hasn't got the talent there to promote it, they've made the decision to push that to next year. And several studios have done um, similarly. Just comparing sort of the, the number of releases this year to what we might see next year, so if we take just the big five studios and the three sort of largest mini majors in terms of market share, so those would be like MGM, Lionsgate and A24. If we took those kind of eight companies as a whole, in 2023, they will have released approaching 130 theatrical titles within the, the kind of domestic market and so on. If we then compare that to what we might call the best case scenario for next year, we're looking at the numbers being down sort of 30% um, on the the number of releases that we saw in 2023. So it's already um, a depleted schedule. And I should emphasize that is very much the best case scenario. So currently, if we look at what the films that have actually been given a date for next year, it's around half of the number of films which will have been released this year. So yes, it's severely depleted schedules next year. You touched on it, Rahul, in terms of the potential for other forms of content other than, you know, Hollywood movies. And again, I think we've seen some activity from some of the main streamers as well in terms of investing in non-US content. I know some of that's been affected by the strikes as well. You know, we see a growing demand in our consumer consumer surveys for non-English language, non, non-Hollywood content. Is this an opportunity to, again, make a correction? I think it's an interesting point. We've definitely seen an internationalization of content via streaming services over the last few years. But the theatrical sector is so specific in the nature of, you know, requiring significant marketing costs up front that I am skeptical at the degree to which some of these studios might turn to international content to plug some of these gaps. We have seen, of course, some Indian titles do really well. Some Japanese anime titles do really well in theatres. But in terms of acting as a direct substitute and generating the levels of revenue that some of these majors and mini majors do with their portfolios, I don't think we're quite there yet. And Alice, in terms of timelines, I mean, we're towards the end of October as we speak. 
I know the talks are ongoing and may events may overtake us, but in terms of clearly there's a desire outside the industry to to, to get this resolved and, and move forward. So when might we see things picking up? I think that we've reached October is already very significant in terms of just the level of impact that it's going to have, especially in, around the TV seasons, which are, as we know, very much more cyclical compared to the typical theatrical release calendar. I think this really is breaking point now in terms of negotiations. And I think this is the point at which we'll start to see concessions made on both sides. But the key thing really to keep in mind is production can't you know, restart immediately. You, know, you, know, you can't sign an agreement one day and cameras roll on all of your projects the next. There's been significant disruption right down to the, you know, the contract level, where all your actors are, when you've got the time to book them into studio space. Do you still have the studio space to make your film and so on? So really, were a agreement to be reached by the end of October or start of November, we would be looking at a production restart properly uh, in January. That would effectively save some of those projects from being severely disrupted. A lot of the smaller projects, the kind of mid-tier budgeted projects, which are perhaps more flexible in terms of their just the, the nature of their production infrastructure, would be able to get off the ground again. But yeah, as I say, this is really this is really breaking point, I think, now. And that is what of studios and actors will be targeting, a January restart to salvage the 2024 box office in terms of just the sheer number of projects that they'll be able to get out and ready in front of consumers in time. Thanks, Alice. So, Rahul, we talked about the theatrical window, the importance of that, and some of the trends that we've seen this year. And Alice has talked us through some of the key issues around the, the strikes in Hollywood and the impact on the pipeline of content for theatrical releases. Just thinking about the next window down in terms of subscription video, what are the trends you're seeing there? What, what's happening here? There seems to be a, an issue around exclusivity. A year or two ago, it was all about exclusive content. Uh, that seems to be changing. So what's happening? Yeah. So as you say, prior to launch, many of the studios that have now launched their own streaming products began pulling their content from the market in order to prepare to offer exclusively on their own services. And the logic is quite clear. If you're offering particular content brands exclusively on your service, you have a differentiated offering and you're going to help consumers understand your product and hopefully drive subscriptions. But we're now entering an era where content is being shared more co-exclusively. So an additional partner offering that content. And I think this is a reaction as more recently companies that have launched their own streaming services look more towards profitability for these products and they discover or rather rediscover the additional stream of revenue that licensing can bring. So in this particular research that we conducted, we looked at 34,000 title movements in the US SVOD market between 2016 and mid-2023. And we're seeing an uptick in how often content is moving around the market, with 2020 averaging a monthly title movement of around 400, compared to 2023 so far, averaging around 510. So we're seeing an increase of over 25% and what type of content has been changing platforms? Any, any titles or genres standing out? So the vast majority of titles changing hands these days are movies. So it's around 80% of titles moving from platform to platform being typically scripted feature films. And I believe that's partly to do with 
movies having a more entrenched traditional windowing pattern, but also the fact that the focus of SVOD platforms on originals has been on TV. And of course, for the most part, we've seen those SVOD originals stay exclusive to a single platform, allowing a greater share of movies to bounce around the market. But what was one of the key instances that inspired this research was the movement of Suits from being exclusively available on Peacock to also available on Netflix in the US earlier this year. And I think this example shows two significant things. The fact that Netflix is licensing titles like Suits shows that despite its significant investment in originals and its drive towards self-sufficiency, it's still clearly interested in the content produced by these other networks, by these other studios. And there are many examples of that. We can look at its deal with Universal's animated films. We can look at its deal with Sony's theatrical slate and also its deal to license several HBO shows like Band of Brothers and Insecure. But the second layer of this is the fact that Suits was such a big success on Netflix shows us that library content still has significant value and We might even see more of this happening in the coming months. As Alice mentioned, with slates significantly being impacted, these content providers may be looking to licensing more content in order to fill gaps in their release calendars. I wonder if this is a, just to extend that idea, do SVOD services make too much content? I mean, should they be looking to do more with fewer titles? I think as these streamers in particular begin to reevaluate how much they spend on original content, we're likely to see a shift towards quality over quantity. And it's not necessarily just a case of the streamers spending loads initially and producing lots of content that has its moment and then loses engagement very quickly. I think when these companies entered the market, they needed to build this expertise in terms of what consumers wanted and what types of content they were looking for. And so a wider approach of commissioning, producing as much content as feasibly possible worked to sort of build that expertise, but then also attract a wide audience. Now we're moving towards consumer retention, subscriber retention as the main objective. And I think that is more doable with a leaner, higher quality slate, particularly when it comes to S1 original movies. And the other takeaway from Suits, and you touched on it, is that you know, Netflix is now such a powerful platform, but it can deliver a really sizable audience to a piece of content, a ready-made audience for a piece of content. And we've seen some interesting other deals, experimental deals in the market. So AMC Plus has, has got a pop-up channel on Max, which is obviously delivering a much bigger audience straight away for a, for, for a small player like AMC. Again, something else you see, we might see more of those smaller studios or mini-majors or smaller D2C services using the power of Netflix or of Max or of one of the bigger platforms to, to, to promote their shows? Certainly. I think the AMC pop-up channel on Max, which I think is running from 1st September of this year to the end of October, is a great example because this is not just the marketing for a title or particular title, but it's marketing for the home platform the original platform for those titles. So we're seeing AMC Plus license these titles to Max. They're not just being integrated into the wider VOD library, but they're having their own designated hub. And so when consumers watch things like Fear the Walking Dead or Killing Eve or Interview with the Vampire on Max, they'll be associating that title with AMC Plus and therefore might be guided towards that competitor SVOD platform once those titles disappear from Max. 
And so looking at some of our 2023 consumer data, we can see that 90% of Mac subscribers don't currently take AMC+. Plus. So there's a significant new audience being brought to these AMC Plus titles by being licensed for a very short window. But it's not just a game for the smaller players. Even if you're a major studio with your own SVOD service, you can benefit from these trends. So I mentioned earlier that we see a lot of licensing of movies in the market. And very recently, we've seen Warner Brothers Discovery license Dune Part 1, so the 2021 movie, to Netflix. And we've also seen the studio license a suite of DC Extended Universe titles to Amazon Prime Video. Now, these two examples are interesting, I think, for two reasons. Firstly, because a couple of years ago, we would never have thought that these titles would have been licensed outside of Warner Brothers Discovery's own SVOD service, but also that both of these properties have new releases coming up, including Dune Part 2, as Alice mentioned, in March next year, and also Aquaman 2, which is still scheduled for December this year. So by licensing these previous entries and franchises to these other platforms, we can see that Max is clearly trying to widen the audience and therefore hopefully bring new audiences to the theatrical releases once they come out. So again, that consumer data shows us that 74% of Netflix subscribers don't t- currently take Max, and 68% of Amazon Prime Video subscribers don't currently take Max. So in terms of increasing that reach, increasing that new audience for these previous installments, it's quite significant here. And I think you mentioned there that change of tone really from Warner Brothers Discovery in terms of what it keeps to itself in terms of exclusive or the new kind of partnerships and arrangements that it's experimenting with. And that seems to be happening across the streaming industry. People are open to ideas and that the key really is to is to monetize the content most effectively. That's the shift we're seeing. So in that new world, where does theatrical fit in for for the streamers? Yes, definitely. As an analyst in this industry and as a keen moviegoer myself, this balance slash conflict, however you want to look at it, between streaming and theatrical has been really interesting to observe over the last couple of years. And as Alice mentioned, both Apple and Amazon have committed significantly to theatrical releases earlier this year. David Zaslav, one of those Discovery CEO, also expressed his commitment to theatrical releases and their value in preserving the traditional path movies take for the initial exhibition window. So I think it's clear that the industry is awake to the value that theatrical release can bring to a title during its lifetime. The marketing spend that comes with it allows the title to sort of penetrate the culture a lot more than a simple drop on streaming can do. And I think being able to take advantage of the secondary and tertiary windows in terms of TVOD release, digital purchase window, then the SVOD window further down the line, the AVOD slash free-to-air window, is going to be a staple of the life cycle for these movies for the foreseeable future. Of course, Netflix is still quite hesitant to invest in theatrical releases. Last year, of course, we had Knives Out 2 as Netflix's biggest push into theatres. I believe that was a one-week exclusive theatrical run before its debut on the streamer a month later. I think this year we're seeing a limited release for Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, but we are yet to see Netflix invest as significantly in theatrical as some of its tech giant counterparts. But for the most part, most of the major entities in this space are clearly committed to some extent to theatrical. So we've talked about SVOD platforms and some of the bigger players, but is is there an angle for broadcasters here and something they can benefit from? Definitely. I think the 
point around widening the audience can be particularly relevant to broadcasters. So we've seen recently some examples of shows having lackluster or depreciating success on broadcast, then finding a new life on streaming. So one recent example is the NBC TV show Manifest, which was revived at Netflix after being cancelled by its original commissioner because of the success those prior seasons had on Netflix. And I think this is a wider trend that broadcasters with you know, underperforming shows could take advantage of. They license the older seasons of a show to a platform sort of outside of its sphere. So if it's SVOD invested going to a quote unquote competitor could help bring in that new audience and therefore redirect consumers back to the broadcaster for the release of the next show and therefore bringing a new audience in and ensuring greater success for subsequent seasons. Thanks, Rahul. Well, that's all we have time for, unfortunately. But thank you very much to all our guests for their time and for sharing their research with us today. We've heard from Peter, Alice and Rahul all about the prospects of a theatrical, both as a standalone business and as part of a broader content monetization strategy, about the writers and actors' strikes and their potential impact on the release slates into 2024, and about the way in which content licensing is evolving as studios are re-embracing windowing and licensing models to maximise the return from content. All of these are themes we at Ampere will be following closely in future. If you haven't already done so, make sure you're subscribed to the AMP podcast as well as our weekly newsletter. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. That's info at ampereanalysis.com. I'm Nick Thomas. I've been your host for today. And the producer of this episode was Rory Goodrick. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>